Yeah, yeah, you can clap for that. Such an awesome season in the life of our church as we celebrated for 21 days, abiding in Jesus. And I love how Pastor Scott said that. He's actually one of our church planners, Crossover Church in inner city Atlanta that we've been supporting for years now. So it was really cool to have him. He's one of my great friends. And I love that statement that he said there at the end, that we are abiding in the finished work of Christ. And we take that season every year to remind ourselves of that, to abide in him. That's our one aim, as we said, to abide. And so those of you that participated in that season with us, I hope you have re-entered well into your life. And as you bring back, you know, certain things that you took out, I hope you didn't, you know, run to a buffet or drink a gallon of sweet tea in an hour or just binge again on media. But I hope that that season wasn't the beginning and ending of something, but it was the beginning of something that it continues in your life. So we want to encourage you in those spiritual disciplines of praying and fasting and worship. And that's a great reminder that we are to abide in that. We're going to get back into the gospel of John today. Before we do that, let me pray and ask God to bless our time together. Pray with me. Father, thank you for loving us. As always, thank you for the opportunity we have to come together and gather together to sing and celebrate what you're doing, to sit underneath the authority of your word. God, we want to submit to that. You are not only the author of this word, but you are the author of our lives. And so therefore, God, you have the power to write in to our stories anything that you choose. And there's so many times there's things that you write in that we don't want you to write in. We don't like it. But God, I pray that we would, by your grace, submit to it because you can be trusted you are God and you are good. And so God, as we open up your word now, I pray that you would bless our time together. Help us all to hear it, to see it. We're gonna talk about sight today, God, and believing while blind. And so God, I pray that you would help us. And as always, help me to communicate it in a way that first honors you and then it's helpful to us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, if you got a Bible, open it up to the gospel according to John. And John chapter nine is where we're gonna be. John chapter nine is one long story about a man that Jesus heals, but we're gonna break it up into several weeks. And if you haven't been here prior to the you know, Abide series and the one we did last year, Leading a Legacy, we've been in the gospel according to John for quite some time. And, and I like just preaching through books of the Bible for several reasons. One, it helps us get a kind of a biblical diet, if you will, to follow along with the, with the books of the Bible, to know what they mean, because that's what we want you, uh, you know, to leave with. I don't want you to leave thinking, oh, that's a great preacher. I want you to leave thinking that's a great God and a great Bible. And so as we preach through books, it helps you kind of know stories. But then it also, uh, what I like about it is it makes me preach through things that I might not have otherwise preached through, because I'm not choosing, oh, I want to talk about this, I want to talk about this. It's like, oh, here's the scripture, let's talk about it. And so as we're going to get into this story, there's some things that you know, I may or may not have said prior to or may have not dug into, but the text kind of forces us to do that. And that's what I enjoy about preaching through this book. And this is no different. And so John chapter 9, we're going to do verses 1 through 12 today. So let me read the first three verses, and then we'll stop 
and talk about it because it kind of sets up this whole chapter. So here we go. It says, as he passed by Jesus, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? Listen to the emphaticness of that. This man or his parents that he was born blind. Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So that's the story or that's the setup. And you have to remember in case you forgot, in John chapter eight, Jesus is in the temple and he is teaching. And he is teaching some things that are pretty controversial in the sense that Jesus is telling the Jewish people who have the law, who had the temple, although it got destroyed and then by this time rebuilt because they were exiled and now they're back. And so they're, he's in the temple really challenging them, saying to them that God is not their father. And they don't take kindly to that. And Jesus says, because if, if God were their father, then they would believe in him. And then he says a very famous verse in John chapter eight, verse 32, and he says, if you would know the truth, the truth would set you free. And they don't like the idea that they're not free. And Jesus says, well, you're a slave to sin. You don't even know it. So they kick him out of the temple. In fact, they pick up stones to throw them at him. And he does his ninja moves and he, you know, sneaks out of the temple, which it's just amazing to me because right outside the temple, there would be people like this blind guy that are just there begging. But just inside the temple, Jesus is about to be stoned and he's, you know, in a hurry. If you're about to be stoned, like people are about to throw rocks at you or shoot at you or something, you don't normally stop and help blind people, right? You're in a hurry. But what's interesting to me is the text tells us, in fact, the gospel, according to John, written by John the apostle who saw this whole thing, it highlights the fact that Jesus saw him. So he was not so much in a hurry that he couldn't see need. So he sees him. And obviously when he sees this blind man, it prompts his disciples to ask a question because they notice what Jesus notices. Jesus sees this guy and then they ask him, well, who sinned, him or his parents, that he was born blind? And here's what's crazy. In inference, what they're saying is somehow this cat who was born blind sinned in his mother's womb, sinned before he was born, which just shows you the biblical idea of personhood. Personhood doesn't start at birth, it starts at conception. Because they had a concept that in that nine months, you're a person and you could sin. And how you were born could even be a result of what you were sinning in the womb. I guess you were kicking your mama too much, right? Like you were wrestling. I don't know what it was. But they literally had the thought that this, cat, this guy was born blind as a result of his sin during that time period or his parents' sin. Now, this isn't the major point of the sermon, but I've got to address it because it deals with a theological wrestle that we all have, which is suffering as a result of sin or not. Now, let me say two main things about this. In a general sense, yes, suffering is in the world as a result of sin. Suffering is in the world as a result of sin. And what I mean by that is when God created the world, he created it perfect, pure. He created Adam and Eve, perfect, pure. 
They had the capacity to sin, but they were not born sinful. They were born sinless. And so everything was perfect. But then you know the story, they chose to sin. And when they chose to sin, they not only brought death upon themselves, they brought death and destruction onto all of God's creation. The Bible talks about it in such a way that not only were human beings broken as a result of that, but the creation itself, the cosmos itself. Paul says in Romans 8, the creation is eagerly awaiting the, the redemption of the sons of God because in that they have, it has its own redemption. And so everything about life is broken as a result of sin. So in a general sense, yes, all suffering is connected to sin, but that's not what they're dealing with here. They're dealing with it in a specific sense or a particular sense that this particular suffering of blindness is connected to specific particular sin. And there we have a problem. And here's where I want to lovingly, hopefully help some of you. Not all suffering in your life is a result of your sin. Not all suffering in your life is a result of your sin. Now again, Paul tells the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 30, when they are treating the communion celebration flippantly, that some of them are sick and have even died because of that, which is why when we take communion together, and people don't always like it, but when we take communion, we ask people, hey, if you're not trusting in Jesus, don't take communion. Why? It's not because we're trying to hold back on some really tasty wafers, because <laughs> let's be straight, they are not. It's because you heap condemnation on yourself if you take it flippantly. If you take it without examining it, that was happening in 1 Corinthians. So Paul says, yes, there are instances where specific particular sins do have consequences. We're not denying that. But here's what I want you to hear me say. Not all suffering is a result of particular sins. How do we know that? Two main people in the Bible, Jesus and Job. Both of them, in fact, I think Job is really a bigger story about Jesus. Jesus is the greater Job. And what I mean by that is Job perfectly obeyed God, and yet God brought suffering. And for like 20-something chapters, Job's friends are miserable friends, by the way. And they say to him, what have you done wrong? You have sinned, surely. He's like, I ain't sinned, bro. That's my interpretation. I haven't sinned. I don't know why this is happening. And he goes on for a considerable amount of time. And then look at this. I want to just, you don't have to turn there. But Job chapter 23, verses 8 through 10. This is how Job talks about it. He says, behold, I go forward, but he, God, is not there. Backward, but I do not perceive him. Onto the left hand, when he is working, I do not behold him. He turns to the right hand, but I do not see him. This is a whole message about blindness. I do not see him, but look at verse 10. But he knows the way that I take. When he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. Job is saying, listen, I've looked at every direction and there's no explanation for this. I don't see God and how he's doing. None of this makes sense to me. But there's one thing I know, that he knows. 
the way that I take. And then we got Jesus. Jesus, yes or no, did Jesus sin? No. Yes or no, did Jesus suffer? There's your conclusion. He didn't sin, but he did suffer. In fact, watch this. The more faithful he was to the call of God, the more he suffered. See, we have to have, listen to me, church, we have to have a theology big enough that God will allow us to suffer. And somehow, in some way, he will use it for his glory and our eventual good because he knows the way. And Job says, when he has tried me, I'll come out as gold. See how you're purifying gold as you turn the heat up, right? And then you get the impurities out. Sometimes God turns the heat up in our lives because there are things that he wants us to learn. And it's not a result of sin. I hope that encourages you as you suffer because we all do. Now let's get back into John chapter nine, verse four. That may not encourage you. You may be like, that actually makes it worse. (laughs) But here's the encouragement. In your suffering, you can know that nothing is happening to you outside of his control. And that he will use it to purify you. Verse four, Jesus says, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Notice a couple things here, and I highlighted them. First, Jesus says, we must work the works of him who sent me. Notice the plural and singular words there. Jesus says, there's a him, there's a God, and there's a lot of conversations today about pronouns and gender and all that type of stuff, but we need to understand something, that God reveals himself as a father. And there's a lot of pushback against that today because we don't like that, but I need you to understand something. When God reveals himself as who he is in his nature and essence, no matter what is going on culturally, it is not our prerogative to question that. Because what we must do is we must think like this. If God has revealed himself in a way, and and because of how I think about things, I feel like that is wrong, we must come to the assumption that God is not wrong, but we are. Because we have a limited understanding, and this is the part that's crazy to me, that how we judge things, even with suffering a lot of times, we judge the world based upon the knowledge in this eight-pound thing as if we somehow are all-knowing. Listen, God is always going to be outside of your ability to explain him. All we can do is go with how he's revealed himself. But when we see who he is and what he's doing, we can actually learn the greatness and the goodness of it. He, what kind of God is he? He's the kind of God that sent Jesus. He's the kind of God that sent Jesus. In fact, 
Colossians says Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So if you want to know what the Father is like, look at the Son. If you want to understand who God is, learn about Jesus. Because Jesus is God. And Jesus says repeatedly, I only do what I see my Father doing. So God the Father does what Jesus does. Well, what did Jesus do? Jesus lived sent. He said, he sent me. Now, why do we believe Jesus is the only way? We believe that Jesus is the only way because he is the only one sent. He's the only one sent from the Father. Well, a lot of people say, well, I don't believe that Jesus is the only way. And to that, I would say, that's all right. Let's have a conversation. Jesus is the only person in human history to die, come back to life again. Now watch this, because there was people he brought back to life that never died again. So people are like, well, I don't believe there's a God, to which I would lovingly say, die, then come back and tell me that you were right. Because until that point in time, it's on faith, is it not? And so some of you may be here today struggling with who Jesus is, to which I would lovingly say to you, we're going to talk about faith and believing in you in just a second. We don't believe blindly. We believe based upon reason and evidence. And I would willingly say to you, and I am willingly say to you, I would never have put my faith and trust in Jesus if he was not raised again. Because if he wasn't raised again, he was just a good man who did some stuff. But when he was raised again and never died, he's God. So Jesus, watch this, is the only one sent from heaven. But then notice the plural words that he uses, or word. We. So Jesus is the only one from heaven sent to earth. He's the only one from heaven, but watch this. He's not the only one sent to earth. It's interesting to me that Jesus didn't say, I must work the works of him who sent me. He said, we must work the works of him who sent me. Jesus, from the beginning, was trying to get his disciples to understand that they are a part of the sent ones too, not just him. You know, we talk a lot around here about living life on mission. And the most amazing thing about that is we want you to understand that God is sending you into the world just like he sent Jesus in the world. You have just as much of a mission as Jesus had. And the most amazing thing about that is Jesus invites us into this mission. Jesus invites us into what he's doing. But if you're anything like me, you're like, oh God, you don't want me on your team. You don't know who I am. You don't know how messed up I am. And therein lies the beauty of the whole story. He does know. He does know. Look at what he does with the blind men. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, what's that next word there? Go. Does that sound familiar? Like when Jesus resurrected in Matthew 28, 18, 
All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore, go. See, he's sending this dude. Now look at this. Go, wash in the pool of Siloam. Now this is just, this is just like next level. Which means, what's that next word there? Hmm. Hmm. We work the works of him who sent me. And now Jesus puts mud on this dude's eyes and sends him to the pool called Sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Now let's chat about this. Let me ask you a couple questions. Could Jesus have healed this man without putting mud on his eyes, yes or no? Yes. Could Jesus have healed this man without making him walk while blind with mud on his eyes now to a pool? Yes or no, could Jesus have done that? Yes. So when Jesus does what he does and he doesn't have to do it that way, we should naturally ask ourselves the question, why do you do that? Why are you doing that? Now, you need to understand a couple things geographically. The Pool of Siloam is south, about a half a mile from the temple. In um, God's kindness, I was actually able to preach this text at the actual Pool of Siloam two and a half years ago when we were in Israel. And I learned a great deal, and I look forward to the day when we can go back and take people so that you can see what we're talking about here. But geographically, the temple is up on the top of Mount Moriah, and then if something's on the top, then when you're walking away from it, which direction are you headed? Down. You guys are so smart. So from the southeast corner of the temple, which is where the treasury was, which is where Jesus was, and he leaves, here's the blind guy, and Jesus sees the guy, takes spit, like, <laughs> spits on the ground. I know that's weird, y'all, but that's what he did. Now, I don't know if he made the noise, but you're paying attention now. He spits on the ground. Makes a little mud pie. I mean, I made a lot of mud pies, but not out of spit. That had to be some saliva. This is a dry place. Mixes it up, puts it on the guy's eyes, and then tells him to walk downhill while blind with mud now. He can't see. So he's having to ask people, hey, which way is the pool? And they were like, yeah, you need to go to the pool. You got mud on your eyes, bro. So why you do this, Jesus? Now, again, some history to the pool that's amazing. The reason why it's called scent is because back in, you can go read this in Chronicles, back in Jewish history, one of the Jewish kings was named Hezekiah. And they were about to be attacked by the Assyrian army. And on the Temple Mount, there is a valley on that side. There's Mount Moriah. There's the Kidron Valley. Then on the other side is the Mount of Olives, which you know we know about because Jesus was there quite a bit. So in between those two is a valley. Well, the bottom of that valley was a spring. 
called the Gihon Springs. And it was just outside the wall. And that is where it would water a lot of fields, a lot of stuff, you know, a lot of vegetation. And so they're about to be attacked. And Hezekiah, who's really smart, decides, you know what? If they attack us and they take our water source, then we're inside the walls with no water. So he decides to redirect it. He decides to send it inside the walls. So he closes up that outside of the wall, we're coming down this hill, digs a tunnel from that place inside the walls, makes a pool called the Pool of Siloam, and now the water from the Gihong Springs is redirected into this pool. And here's what's amazing. You can go walk that tunnel today. And there's a big old sign there that says Hezekiah's Tunnel, which was about 700 years prior to Jesus, which just obliterates the notion that the Jewish people don't have claim to that area because their history is all over it. You can try to erase it on the top, but you go down underneath, baby, mm, that'll preach. You see the history. They found an inscription because they had masons dig from two sides of the tunnel, and when they met, they put an inscription on the wall into the rock, and it's still there. So he redirects this water, sends it into the inside, and that is where Jesus sends him. Sends him to the pool of the place called Sent to get water. Now, still doesn't answer the question, why he do this? Now, there's a couple theories. One theory is if you remember back into human history, I kind of referenced it earlier, when God made everything, the Bible specifically tells us in Genesis 1 and 2 that when he makes humans, God bends down into something and blows life into it. What does he do? What does he get? Dirt. So here's Jesus spitting into dirt. And one theological explanation is Jesus has made eyes from dirt before. He can do it again. And I'm fine with that explanation. It, it could be symbolic in nature. It's like, I done made an eyeball out of this stuff before. Here we go. But I think the greater explanation is Jesus wanted this man to exercise faith while blind. Because the Bible tells us, Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. In fact, I'm going to give you this point. You might want to write it down. Faith is believing while blind. Faith is believing while blind. Let me show you what I mean. The blind man can't see Jesus, can he? Like, don't overlook this fact. It's obvious. All he can do is hear him. Well, Paul tells us in Romans 10 that faith comes by hearing. Hearing the word of God. And how can they hear unless someone preaches? And how can someone preach unless they are sent? 
Jesus was sent to say something to this man, which is what he said in verse three. This is not a result of sin. This is so the works of God may be displayed in his life. This man has to hear Jesus. And and just picture this. He can't see what Jesus is doing. All he does is hear Jesus hacking a loogie. He doesn't know what he's doing with that. He doesn't know that he's making mud. And just imagine he's there. In fact, let's just do that. Everybody close your eyes for a second. Just close your eyes for a second. Even if you're watching, just close your eyes. And If you're driving in a car, don't close your eyes. But everybody else, just picture yourself. You can't see. You can't see the hand of Jesus making mud. And you cannot see the hand of Jesus coming close to you with the mud until the mud hits your face. And when mud hits your eyes, how would you react? Okay, open your eyes. You probably react something like this. What what are you doing? Why are you putting mud on my eyes? And then after he puts the mud on your eyes, he tells you, get up and walk to a place that you can't see. You ever felt like God has told you to do something ridiculous? And right when he tells you to do something ridiculous, you're like, but God, that's going to make me look ridiculous. Imagine this guy walking about a half a mile downhill with mud on his eyes. Why is Jesus doing this? Because faith is believing while blind. Faith is believing you'll see it before you see it. Faith is believing when you can't see it. And I don't want you to miss this. He believes and then he sees. That's the order. And the reason why I'm stressing this is there's gonna be plenty of times where God will come to us and tell us and faith is exercised if we do what he says. So I can't see this, God. I know you can't. But Job 23 verse 10 says, he knows the way I take. He knows because he sent you there. So faith is believing while blind. The story goes on, verse eight. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some says, some said, It is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. Now watch this. He kept saying, I am the man. And in the Greek, the word, the man is not there. It's supplied in English to kind of understand. It is just the Greek word, I am. I am, I am, I am. 
So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes. Now, the text told us earlier that he anointed his eyes, but I didn't point it out because I wanted to point it out here. We like to talk a lot about anointing, and we think anointing is, some, is blessing and favor, and I'm not saying it's not, but sometimes the anointing is mud. And we don't like it. Anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. Now let's get in, we'll get into the rest of this next week. But there's still a lot this man doesn't know yet. He can't explain everything about the activity of God. There's still so much he's blind to. There's still so much he doesn't see. I love how Paul says it in Corinthians. He says, we see through a mirror dimly. We, we don't, there's like a veil, even though the veil, you know, Christ has been lifted, we can see Christ. I can't see everything else yet. And this is the struggle for a lot of Christians. That are like, well, well, I've seen that, but I, I can't see this, God. Where are you, Jesus? And this guy's saying, I don't know. But what does he know? He was blind, but now he sees. That's all he knows. Now, a couple things I wanna point out here. One, it says, the neighbors and those who had seen him before, they could see. He couldn't see. And the ones who could see are now disagreeing about what they saw. Don't miss this. This word here, seen him before, is the Greek word, let me read it to you, theorio. It's literally spelled, and I kid you not, this is not because I'm coming off of fast. It's literally the spelled the Oreo. <laughs> the Oreo. I don't know what that says about me that that's the first thing I saw. <laughs> T-H-E-O-R-E-O. -E and it's pretty obvious when you look at it where we get our English word theory from. Our English word theory comes from this Greek word, seen. So watch this. They saw him blind. Now they see him seeing, and they got theories. They got theories. That's literally the text. They got theories. Now what's a theory? A theory, in scientific terms, is a hypothesis. Something that I think is true, so I'm going to test it, and if it comes out and I can repeat it, then I know it's true. Theories. There's a lot of theories, isn't there? A lot of theories in the world. This is why when people say, and I'm not saying this politically, but I just want you to understand why I'm stressing this. People say, trust the science. 
What science? Have you noticed that science can produce a study and people will have completely different theories about it? Oh, it says this. That's not what it says. But watch this. Because they look at the science subjectively through a worldview or lens that they already had before they saw it. And so they got theories. There are so many theories in the world right now about the nature of humanity, the nature of marriage, the nature of men and women, the nature of subjective or an objective reality, truth, so many theories. And, and what I'm trying to get you to see is even people who claim they can see are blind. You'll see that at the end of the chapter. But don't miss this man and what he says. He is not defined by their theories. What does he do? I, imagine this guy. He was blind. He just walked a half a mile with mud on his eyes made out of spit and dirt. He washes it off. He can see. He comes back to the people who knows who he is, and they are debating whether or not it was really him. Oh, that's him. And then others like, no, no, no. But it's like him. And he's over there like, it's me. It's me. It is me. I am the guy. I'm just as surprised as you I was able to do that. <laughs> I am. Don't miss this. He does not shy away from his status before he met Jesus. He does not shy away from his pre-Jesus status. In fact, let me give you this last point. Own your blind beggar who believed Jesus status. Own it. Own it. See, there's going to be people who come to you and ask you questions about a lot of theories. Because they got theories about the nature of the world, about the, the nature of how humans got here, the nature of what's happening, the nature of reality. They got a lot of theories. But you know the one thing that they can't deny who you were versus who you are now. I was a blind beggar. I don't know where he is right now. I don't know what he's doing right now, but there's one thing I know. I was blind, but now I see. That's what I know. I don't know a lot, but I know I am. 
Mm, come on, somebody. I know I am a blind beggar. But I know I am came and found me. I love Pastor Louis Giglio's book by this title, I Am Not, But I Know I Am. Own it, church. So there's a lot of Christians who like to walk around in a false piety, acting like they're not that bad. But when we act like we're not that bad, it's like acting like we're not that blind. And that actually robs God of glory. But when you can own your blind beggar status, and you can own the fact, I was blind. I couldn't see. And I was begging everyone to love me to help me. G.K. Chesterton said this, every man who walks into a brothel is looking for God. How much of our time have we spent walking around begging other people to see us? And we, watch this, we will mold ourselves into their theories of us just so that we will be seen by them. And all I can say to you is none of that compares to Jesus seeing you and giving you sight. So own it. Own your blind beggar status who believe Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you sent Jesus. There is no God like you. No other religion in the world is built upon the sentness of its founder. Every other faith system in the world is built upon us trying to get to you. But Christianity is built upon Christ getting to us who were blind beggars, could not see the truth, and were begging the world to see us. And then you came and you saw us. And in faith, we believed and then we could see. And so God, I pray for anybody here today who has not trusted in Jesus. They are blind right now. They are begging to be seen. And you see them. I pray right now, God, you'd open their eyes and in faith they would believe while blind. 
No one looking around or talking here as we close. If you've never trusted Jesus, today you can believe that Jesus sees you. And if you'll respond in faith, then you will see him and be saved. So if you wanna trust him right there, you can pray with me. You don't have to do it out loud. And it goes like this. Say, Father, thank you for loving me. That you sent Jesus to save me so that I could see. See the truth. And God, I trust the truth. I'm trusting in Jesus alone to save me. Would you forgive me? my sins. Wash me. Thank you for loving me. No one looking around or talking here as we close. If you trusted in Jesus, we want to know about that and celebrate with you. We only got one theory around here. And that is we were lost, but now we're found. We love to celebrate that. So if that was you and you're in one of our locations, would you just lift your hand up so we can see that? Thank you. Lift it up. Jasper, lift it up. Canton. We got men and women gonna walk around, put a gift in your hand, and when they do, you can put it down. But then those of us who have trusted Jesus want you to understand something. You can see Jesus clearly as your savior and still not know where he is and what he's doing. Because you may go, be going through a season of suffering right now and you can't see it. But what I wanna encourage you with is you just keep looking at Jesus. Just keep seeing that he saved you. And if he saved you, he wouldn't leave you now. And in the confusion, in the chaos, you can claim to the promise of Job 23, he knows my ways. Father, would you bless this word? We own our blind beggar who Believe Jesus' status. Thank you for the I am coming to I am. There's no story like it. Bless us in Jesus' name. Amen. Love you, church.